0: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings
1: will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Canva.com. Designed for work.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with the New Yorker Magazine's celebrated cover artist, Barry Blitt. ...about where his ideas come from. Well, you, you want to have your pen on the
3: page. I mean, there's times when I'll walk around and try and think of things, but three-quarters of the battle is,
2: is scribbling. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: For cartoonists and illustrators, there's no bigger stage than the cover of The New Yorker. Since 1992, Barry Blit has contributed more than 100 covers and countless illustrations to the magazine. He is a master of political satire and he is fully engaged in the Trump era with devastating caricatures of the people in power. His most controversial cover, however, came during the 2008 campaign with his illustration of President Obama dressed in Muslim garb, fist bumping, and armed and afroed Michelle Obama. Barry Blitz's work has also appeared in many other magazines as well as in the New York Times. The best place to see it is in his magnificent new book titled, simply, Blit. I'm so honored to have him here on Design Matters today to talk about his career and his extraordinary body of work. Barry Blit, welcome to Design Matters.
3: Thank you, Debbie. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Barry, I'd like to read the first sentence of your new book. You write, If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into
3: it if you
1: want to know the truth. That line is vaguely familiar to me.
3: Right. It's the first line of Catcher in the Rye.
1: Um, What made you decide to to use that line?
3: Uh, What made me decide to use it? I was scrambling. Really? Yeah, I don't do a lot of writing about myself. I mean, there is an, an anonymity to just contributing drawings to publications. You know, and I mean, the New Yorker is—it's very visible, but it's not. You know, it's—it's it's about them. It's not about me. Putting the book together is not something I would have suggested. It was, uh, you know, an editor at Riverhead, Jeff Klosky, called me with the idea, and it's every illustrator's or cartoonist's, you know, ideal to. to have a collection of their stuff in one tome, so you know. I was delighted to do it, but it's you know it does come with a certain amount of you know. I'm, I'm sitting here being interviewed here and with uncomfortable headphones, so I'm out of my comfort zone, is what I'm saying.
1: Oh, well, we'll try to get you to feel a little bit more comfortable.
3: You don't have earbuds I could wear. Um, no, forget it. Okay, <laughs> keep going. I'll get over okay, it. Okay, good.
1: Barry, you were born in Quebec, Canada, and have said that you were born a smart aleck, a Weisenheimer, a jokester, a punster, and a fool. So you just popped out that way.
3: Well, you know, my dad was like that. My younger brother is a is a is a funny guy. So you know, there was there wasn't much choice really.
1: As a toddler, you drew cartoon characters on shirt cardboard. And I understand that it was then that your parents saw potential and encouraged you to go into dry cleaning.
3: Right, that was a that's a joke.
1: Yeah, see, I'm yeah. trying to seem like I'm the one that's funny when in Please, fact it's really better just you than am quoting. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it's no picnic trying to be funny all the time. I think that was that was the thrust of what I was trying to get across. It's you know you get into trouble like the fist bump, like countless other times. Trying to be funny is a it's a blessing and a curse. So what kind of drawings were you making on that cardboard paper? I mean, I was drawing Popeye a lot as a very young kid, and then I was sort of drawing my own cartoon characters. We're talking about very young.
1: Very young, yes. When did you decide that you might be, or when did you realize that you might be artistic?
3: I think I was just told by adults and, and peers and friends, you know, that that kid could draw, basically.
1: When you were a teenager, your focus was on drawing hockey players, baseball players, Elton John, all of which I can understand, but you also had to focus on drawing Dorothy Hamill. Right. Why Dorothy Hamill?
3: I don't think we have to talk about this, really. Why? I I liked Dorothy Hamill at at a certain age where I was vulnerable. Oh,
1: wait, so you had a crush on her. I had a crush on On Dorothy Hamill. Oh, I was thinking that it might have had something to do with her hair.
3: Well, she had good hair.
1: But you had a crush on her. I did, And did you ever send her any of your drawings? I hope I
3: didn't. (laughs) I can't totally remember.
1: Yeah. Did you send your drawings out a lot to people?
3: I did, yeah. I grew up in Montreal, so I was a hockey fan, as you, you pretty well had to be. And I had a sort of a scam going where I would draw hockey players, usually the visiting teams, and I would go down to the hotel where they stayed and I would wait for them to come down into the lobby and I would present them with their drawings. And I ended up, you know, befriending a lot of hockey players and getting free tickets to hockey games. And I had so my, that
1: was the scam part.
3: That was the scam. Yeah, it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't a scam. It was more of an angle. But I, I, I had my work published in the Pittsburgh Penguins playoff yearbook and the Philadelphia Flyers yearbook. So,
1: can you see if you were to look back on those drawings now, the beginning of your signature style?
3: No, no, they were reverential. You know, I mean, I was a smart aleck, as I mentioned, but I sort of kept that out of my work. I thought one's art shouldn't be sullied by your wise cracks and your your attitude.
1: From all the research that I've done about your early drawing and going to college and so forth, it seems that you really had two separate camps of work. You had this, what you called, crazy pictures that you kept out of your portfolio. They were for your friend's eyes only. Um, And then you had the more serious, what you considered to be artistic work. What kind of work was
3: that? Once I, at a certain age, learned... To capture a likeness, you know, it was hero worship basically and then when that started to feel uncomfortable, it was sort of photo realism with, with very soft pencils, charcoal and stuff like that. And At the same time, I was doing pen and ink stuff. So I had a, a sort of a dual portfolio that I brought around to magazines in Toronto after I finished school.
1: Now, you never took any art classes before you went to college, right. yet you got into the Concordia University in Montreal and then the Ontario College of Art on the strength of what you referred to as your humorless portfolio. Right. Um, and so those were just drawings that you made on your own that weren't hockey players or Dorothy Hamill. What kinds of things were you doing at there that was point? was
3: probably some Dorothy Hamill. There was, I mean, there was rock star drawings. And
1: yep. and so then when you got into school, you decided, okay, this is it. I'm I'm going to be an artist. I want to do this for a living.
3: I mean, I felt I was going to do this for a living in one way. I thought maybe I'd be drawing portraits in hotels, and in ho- or I'm I'm not sure what I thought I would be doing.
1: You wrote uh, that you were intimidated when you first got to college.
3: Just being around so many terrific artists. You know, I wasn't used to that. Being around with you know, surrounded by people who were damn good at this for one thing. And uh, maybe realizing that what I was doing was, was crap, you know, which, you know, I feel every day. But that's when I was first introduced to it. When I was, you know, 14 and drawing hockey players, I thought I was just doing fantastic work.
1: Given that the bulk of your work for school assignments was, as you put it, authentically realistic with slavish adherence to likeness and mood, what kind of response were you getting from your professors? Did you ever show them your more slapdash pen and
3: ink drawings? I did some. I remember one of the first pen and ink drawings I did, the slapdash style, was a drawing of Rodney Dangerfield that I haven't matched since. It was just a you know, it was a the colors were bright. I you know, I wish I I still drew like that. And you I still have that drawing? I still have that drawing. It should be in the book. It's not. Yeah,
1: it should be in the book.
3: Yeah, so I got a good response to that. Particular drawing, but after that, I went back to the charcoal stuff.
1: And at that point, you you just said that you were thinking you might make illustrations in a hotel or something like that. But what was? Did you have aspirations? Were you thinking I'd like to be a cartoonist in the vein of?
3: I think I was I was fighting against the cartoonist uh, label, you know. And and I had a roommate in art school who was a fine artist, a, an aspiring fine artist. And he would look at my drawings and say, oh, it's cartoons, you know, what you're doing. It's He would belittle it by that. And I think I took that as a, as a pejorative. And I was trying to do something higher, but I'm not sure what what it is I was trying to do. How did
1: you go about getting work when you first graduated?
3: So, yeah, I brought around a portfolio of my pieces I was proud of, but, you know, I wanted to stack the portfolio, and I also had some funny stuff. And every art director I went to, except for a few notable ones, um, preferred the funny stuff.
1: Did that worry you at the time?
3: I was happy to get work. You know, I was happy that I expected to bring work in and you know not have it be well-received. So I was excited that they liked something.
1: You wrote how you felt that indulging in the humorous for money in real magazines and newspapers felt like cheating. Is because you enjoyed it so much?
3: I don't know about the money part. I mean, I would have happily... Sold the realistic stuff for money, but yeah, I thought that art was something higher than than you know wise cracks. Little did I know
1: <laughs> you can make a good living at this stuff.
3: Yeah, and there's tremendous art in wise cracks, and uh, you know I, I've come to appreciate that.
1: But your work is really more than just wise cracks. It's not. Three Stooges kind of ha-ha-ha work. It, it, there's a it, real biting satire to it. Not that there's not some biting satire as well to the Three Stooges, but how did you start to bring politics and satire into your work?
3: I started getting work with the funny stuff, the so-called funny stuff, and then I started sending my portfolio to, to the United States and getting work there. And before too long, I had a regular gig with Entertainment Weekly, and I was doing pop culture stuff. So it still had echoes of Dorothy Hamill and electric light orchestra, etc. And I think the political angle emerged with the Monica Lewinsky scandal when suddenly it seemed like politics became pop culture and I was being asked by Entertainment Weekly of all places you know, to, to make Bill Clinton jokes and uh, politics was everywhere and it sort of happened that way. From
1: what I've uncovered in my research, when you first started out doing this type of work, you, by your own admission, say that your knowledge of politics was superficial. You don't still feel that way, do you?
3: Uh, I think so. I mean I don't have strong feelings or understanding of economic policy or anything like that. I mean I find I go to a dinner party and if everyone is left-wing there, which I consider myself strongly left-wing, but I argue with whoever I'm talking to. I'm sort of a contrarian It's easy to make jokes about stuff, but to understand it deeply, I I don't think I do. Because
1: there really is a a deep pathos embedded in your work, at least that I perceive, that leads me to believe that the person behind those drawings is, is sort of deeply feeling the humanity in any, any not me. situation no <laughs> just making
3: it up sure yeah no i i hope i am
1: i know you don't like compliments i have to, keep, well, I have to be I, careful i i just would
3: rather not think about these things too much i i think if if i were to worry or to uh to look inward too far it would it would kill every artistic impulse i had it make me too self-conscious not that i'm not enough already but when you first
1: started working at The New Yorker in the 1990s with Chris Curry, you began drawing illustrations for reviews and for articles and either pen and ink or watercolors. So at that point, do you feel that you had sort of found your style, your yeah, book? Yeah, quite yeah. A,
3: a bit before that, by the late by the 80s, by the late 80s.
1: How did you get your first big break with The New Yorker?
3: The first big break with The New Yorker? I mean, I, mean, I remember... I think they still used to see artists then. I don't know if they do anymore, but I brought my portfolio in. I called Chris Curry, and, and uh, she came out into the lobby and looked through my portfolio and then gave me a movie review to, to illustrate. I did several of those. And then she introduced me to Francoise Mouly, who had just started at the magazine.
1: Now, I read when, you, she, when she first reviewed your portfolio, you showed her a few panels on a page about a beard museum. Right. So does that really exist or was it an idea to develop one?
3: That was an idea just I had kept showing to Francoise. Part of my relationship with Francoise is to try and make her laugh. If I would bring her a sketch that she didn't like, I would make sure to bring it back, you know. And I think she said, that's ridiculous, you know. We're we're not going to run that. So kept bringing it back to her.
1: Well, in 1993, Françoise invited you to try, in quotes, a cover. What does it mean to try a cover?
3: At the end of a phone call about something else, she just said, you know, why don't you – Why you should be pitching covers. You know, why why don't you – and I was doing a lot of spot illustrations by then, so the, the amount of real estate a cover has is is intimidating.
1: I mean, there's a shroud of mystery around how the New Yorker covers – come into being. Uh Um, I learned a lot reading your book about it, and it's really fascinating, especially the speed in which it happens. But I do know that there's this process of pitching ideas for the covers. So how do you go about doing that? You just decide that this is a topic that you believe is worthy of a cover and then execute and send in a sketch? Is that really how simple it is?
3: I guess so. I mean, back then... This was before I think before I had a scanner probably, and so I would walk. Or it was before I was doing political stuff. I would walk around the city and and have a sketchbook open and see things that amused me. And in this particular time, I'm sure I sent in quite a few sketches. But one I I was watching people newly you know congregating outside of buildings smoking cigarettes. That was a new law that you couldn't smoke in an office, and so I had them standing on window ledges. That was the, the the sketch.
1: You showed some of those sketches to Edward Sorel, the legendary illustrator.
3: Right. Well, actually, how it happened was I sent the sketch in, the rough sketch, and Francois said, "Tina likes it. Go ahead," which, you know, sent me in all kinds of bad directions. But I did several versions of it, and uh, none of which were usable at all. They were bad drawings.
1: Why? What makes something they,
3: … They tightened up and I was approaching it wrong. I mean Francoise looked at them and rolled her eyes and said to me, why don't you go talk to Ed Sorrell? He's done lots of covers and he would be a great person to talk you down and give you some advice, which terrified me and I said, no, I'm not going to talk to Ed. But he called me a minute later and invited me over and it was it was an amazing thing. I went to his house for lunch and he he said, "Show me what you've got." I showed him some drawings. He said, "No, no, no. These are terrible. It's the, where'd you get these buildings from?" And I said, "Well, I made them up, you know, to fit the image." And he said, "Don't make. You know, some people can make up buildings. You can't. I can't." And he showed me how he would do it. He just did a very rough sketch of the, the composition of the image.
1: When you ended up with the final, he was still somewhat
3: right. underwhelmed. <laughs> he was. You can't win.
1: Um, But what was his critique?
3: Because he didn't say. Oh, he
1: just said... uh, He just said,
3: not your best work.
1: (laughs) That's just so cruel. Which is
3: almost encouraging from Ed.
1: (laughs) Well, despite Ed's misgivings, on January 10th, 1994, your first cover was published. It was titled Resolute Smokers and featured smokers all over buildings, on the ledges, in the windows, desperately trying to get their fix.
3: Yeah, I mean... Ed's comment wasn't the worst of it because about a month later, uh, the New Yorker got a letter from Arnold Roth, another legendary cartoonist, showing that he had done the exact same idea in Time magazine maybe a year before. And then the New Yorker themselves found that they had run a cartoon, a black and white cartoon inside the magazine before Arnold's of uh, people standing on window ledges smoking. So Did you feel doomed? I felt doomed. That's exactly how I felt.
1: How do you recover from something like that?
3: You recover. You know, I mean, I've produced some duds, more than my share. And you just, you know, you go on to the next one.
1: I want to talk a little bit about how you work. Illustrator Steve Brodner has said that the most important tool a satiric artist can have is a space to play. But every issue of The New Yorker closes the print issue on Fridays, and you often get a call on a Wednesday Wednesday or a Thursday, asking for ideas. You're then expected to send in sketches in a matter of hours. So how do you go about doing
3: that? A good example would be the Brexit situation. That was a Thursday night. Usually the magazine goes to to the printer on Thursday. But because the results were so unexpected and, and profound, there was an email that went out to artists on Friday morning saying we're going to hold the cover we have at the plant. If anyone has an idea, let us know right now. I remember just walking into my studio and scribbling a couple of things. I and I, I wish there was a, a dramatic, you know, sequence I could I, I could describe for you. But it was just a matter of of panicking and drawing and you know trying to make myself laugh in a second.
1: And and it's a fairly remarkable cover. It's a British men in sort of top <laughs> hat and jackets walking off a cliff. Yeah, it's so, from Monty Python. It's right,
3: a silly walk. How
1: do you come up with the ideas?
3: I think there's much less than I mean than meets the ear here. There's there's nothing. There's nothing. really nothing. I mean, it's it's. I can tell you that there was the cover we had of the guy being dragged off a plane, and that's an objective is to try and mash a couple of storylines into a single image, and that was ju- ju- Jeff
1: Sessions was pulling James Comey off, and Trump in the background was a right. flight attendant,
3: right, and that was shortly on the heels of the guy getting pulled off the United Airlines flight right, and it it worked as a as a commentary on the situation. The truth is that I came up with that idea a few weeks before when Steve Bannon was rumored to be uh, on the outs and he was going to be fired and he wasn't at the time. I mean he was much later but I originally sketched it out as Steve Bannon being pulled off which wouldn't have worked at all. I mean you're, you want to be sympathetic with the guy who's being pulled off so it had some resonance as as it you know with with James Comey being pulled off but yeah the idea as i thought of it was a lousy idea with Steve Bannon but it just happened to work i mean i i think there's a lot of luck involved
1: well i think luck is there when you show up time after time after time after right. time and maybe one day if you're lucky luck is there waiting for you but no but let's talk for a second i i disagree that the steve bannon version of that cover wouldn't work it would be appropriate but it, it might be not funny. be as funny
3: it would be funny but it wouldn't it it's it just intellectually if i can use that word here it w- it wouldn't work on on any other level than as a joke i mean it it was not so cheap a laugh The way it worked out, I think.
1: Yeah. No, it's not a a cheap laugh. It's a sad laugh.
3: It's a tragic laugh. There's nothing like a sad laugh.
1: Yeah. Well, that's – I mean you and Chris Ware, you have that sort of sense. Alison Bechdel as well. You can convey humor, sadness, heartbreak, pathos with one stroke of your pen.
3: I think you're mixing me up with Harry Bliss actually.
1: No, I'm not. Okay. You've said that you still have to force yourself with every drawing and every sketch not to hold back, not to be too timid on the page. And Françoise has written about how she never wants you to edit out the gross, the vulgar or the unpublishable. And she goes on to state in the book, a humorist like Barry Blitt is often referred to as having an edge. And to find that edge, he has to go beyond it, sometimes far beyond. So my question is, how do you struggle with forcing yourself not to hold back in order to go beyond that edge? It seems like there's a real push-pull of not wanting to be too timid, but also getting to that place where you've gone too far and it does become unpublishable.
3: Right. Well— actually this this isn't challenging and probably isn't hard to explain this aspect of it. I mean, I think I always have bad thoughts and and I go too far in my sketchbook you know it's just stuff I wouldn't send to her, so she just encourages me to send it to her you know and half of the time, like the Beard Museum, I know it's something that she's not going to publish, and that's fine i you know it's fun to make francoise laugh so at that point I'm just sending her you know I'll send her ten sketches, and I know three of them are absolutely pointless.
1: But it seems to me that that is – that signifies there's a real trust there. It, yeah,
3: sure. I mean I've, I have I only once got a <laughs> once got sort of a bad reaction from her from something I sent. Can you share what it was? Yeah. It was uh, – I'm not sure if I sent it or mentioned it to her but when she was telling me to not hold back, I had an idea of like a – this is a terrible idea – but it's uh, it's one of those train cars going to the, to Auschwitz basically, and it's everyone you know packed into the car, and there's one guy talking on his cell phone, and everyone's irritated because he's talking on his cell phone. <laughs> so that was. She said, "Thank you very much for showing me that," in a tone of voice I hadn't heard before. But otherwise, you know, I, probably you need you need to go too far to get to where you're going, or some.
1: In a conversation with Steve Heller, you implied that much of your best work was the results of accidents that somehow succeeded. And you also, again, in that specific essay, there was a a reference to luck. And he didn't believe that for a minute, but I was intrigued. I I was intrigued because I wanted to understand how do you get to that accident to begin with? And that gets us back to that other question about how do you come up with ideas and I know that Steve Brodner in, in your book talks about how he feels that it's important to write drunk but edit sober. So, so the, that, that plethora of ideas, that flurry of connections that you're making, how does even a happy accident happen? How does that mash
3: up? Well, you, you want to have your pen on the page. I mean, there's times when I'll walk around and try and think of things, but I think uh, three quarters of the battle is, is scribbling. And making something visible, you know, not keeping it in your head. And that and you know, luck is just another word for it, I guess. And it's it's definitely part of the process.
1: You mentioned before the notion of your first few sketches for your first ever cover for the New Yorker being tight.
3: Right. And not sketches, this was final artwork. Oh so final artwork yeah. being
1: tight. I've read that you will often do more than one finished cover so that each version appears Casual and and loose. How do you achieve that casual looseness uh, so that it doesn't appear tortured?
3: I think it does appear tortured plenty of times, but it's I it's trying to distract myself. It's trying not to think about it too much, which is hard, you know, when your brain's going blah, 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 blah in your head. But it's just a matter of doing it, you know?
1: Uh, If there's a single part of an illustration that you don't like, I read that you'll redo the entire thing. And yet your work always looks entirely spontaneous. And I guess that's the result of that looseness. What gives you the sense? Is it just a personal assessment that something looks too tight or something looks too forced or tortured?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. On the other hand, when you say something, an entire image will look will look loose. There are times when I'll send several versions to Francoise and she'll take maybe she'll take one figure out of the out of one and digitally put them together. Oh really? Yeah.
1: And in, in the New Yorker cover of Martin Luther King hailing a cab, Francoise Mouly suggested that you have a face in the taxi driver. Um, you, you the drew the window. sort of inside of the taxi cab and then the driver is looking out and yet you can see the driver in the rear view mirror, as you just said. How many ideas do you get from Françoise? Because I know she was the one that said, can you put the driver in the car? So how much of that is collaborative? How much of the work do you do together?
3: It's collaborative. I mean often they're, they're happening at the very last minute. So she might get the final art and say, I've, you know, it might be a good idea if I do this. Are you OK with that? And she'll, she'll digitally move something. But How
1: often does she say no to you? How do you mean no? As in bad idea Barry.
3: That was spelled out. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sending – if I'm sending – ultimately, uh, the magazine publishes 50 issues a year or so. And I'm lucky if I get four or six covers a year. It seems
1: like you're kind of getting a lot more now.
3: My math could be wrong. But right. I mean I'm not – I've never done 10 in a year or eight, I don't think. I'm not sure how many I do. I, I but bet you will
1: come up this year with about that
3: many. There's a lot of no's. I mean I'm, I'll often send – You know, ten sketches and none of them will go. My batting average is—it's—it's like a pitcher's. It's not a great. It's not a great batting average.
1: But if you think about somebody like Babe Ruth, you know, great one of the greatest baseball players of all time. You know, what was it, four hundred?
3: Right. So I'm not in Babe Ruth territory. Okay.
1: Well, let's—we're not going to argue. We're talking numbers, and if (laughs) you're—if
3: you're asking numbers, you know, I'm sure that I, if I, let's say, I have six covers a year or seven, I'm sure. Over the year i've sent seventy sketches at least probably, probably more than that
1: in an essay in your book, Francoise stated that when you first met, you had her watch Fox News rather than msnBC
3: I had her watch yes uh, i i wasn't aware of that I mean I told her that i i was i made sure to to listen to Rush Limbaugh when I could stand it and to watch Fox when I could stand it, and now i can 't even watch. MSNBC. I can't. I can I mean, I don't watch any televised news. I find it all show busy and crap. But, but that's just me. But yeah, I think it's important to you know to see what what the country is consuming, see what people are looking at. I have some friends who are extremely right wing. It's distressing. How do you manage? We don't talk politics at all.
1: Isn't that hard to do?
3: Which not talk politics?
1: Not to talk politics with people yeah. that you know have different politics than you do. Yeah. It's a lot is. easier not to talk politics with people you know have the same politics with you.
3: Right. It's unsatisfying. If I if I have an argument with them and I, even if I feel like I've won the argument, I feel bad afterwards, you know, so.
1: Yeah. You have some absolutely wonderful photographs in your book showcasing the tools of your trade. And they include synchromatic, transparent watercolor, India inks, quill pens, But on another spread, you have Zantac and aspirin and Pepto-Bismol. Do you find the work very stressful?
3: I mean I'd probably be stressed out whether I was working or not.
1: So it's not really about the times. It's just about the way you are?
3: Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm sure it's the way I am probably. And I just went and did a live drawing thing with the New York Times there. And I thought it would be hilarious to have a pill bottle on the – on the drawing surface there, but apparently the last person they had did that too. So,
1: When it first came out that Tiger Woods had been unfaithful to his wife, you created a rather cheeky image of Tiger Woods trying to get a golf ball in about 130 holes. And the illustration was accepted and then rejected by the New Yorker, then subsequently accepted and rejected by Vanity Fair, and then rejected by the Huffington Post. You've said that this is what is known in illustration as a triple bogey. How do you know what is appropriate for what type of magazine? How, why would you send something to the New Yorker versus Vanity Fair versus the Huffington Post?
3: I mean, I've that's I think that's probably the only time I ever sent anything to the Huffington Post, and uh, my objective is to send things to the New Yorker first and foremost. I mean, I send everything there first, and then when it was killed, I, you know, I thought that Vanity Fair might might go for it possibly.
1: So even though it might be rejected by Francoise or some other art director at The New Yorker, if you feel really strongly about something, you would still consider sending... that. They're not the final word. You might consider yeah, taking it, it was, elsewhere.
3: If I thought it was still viable. Yeah. And so
1: no one ever published that illustration. First time that anybody could see it is in your book. Right. There's a reason to buy the book.
3: I think I've had stuff published in other magazines that The New Yorker didn't go for. I did a drawing of... Uh, It's a casket, a flag-draped casket being supported by pallbearers. I wrote, support our troops below it. The New Yorker didn't go for it. But I think the Atlantic Monthly did. It was around the time of the Iraq War.
1: Let's talk about some of your most famous covers. Throughout the eight years of the second Bush administration, you were persistently brutal on George W., most deservedly so, in the September 8, 2008 cover titled, Deluged, which featured Bush, Dick Cheney, Karl Rove, and Condoleezza Rice sitting in a flooded oval office. How do you see this type of idea before you draw it? Again, this goes back to the creation of ideas, but that one was so vivid and struck such a deep, deep chord in our society. I'm wondering if you could just give us any kind of backstory on that particular illustration.
3: I wish I could make the the process dramatic, or even you know give you a sequential tour of what the hell is happening. But it's just it's a it's a pencil moving in on a page, you know. And it's I don't know what the hell's going on. To be honest with you, it's a terrible answer. But I you know I think I'd rather not know.
1: Well, that's that's fair. That's actually really wonderful. Let's talk specifically then about Condoleezza Rice's hair.
3: Okay. Yeah. It's. It's, it's quite okay. an architectural that thing. That is
1: quite an architectural I, I feat. A, <laughs> it is. How does she do it? How did you do it? Her. You just got it so perfect.
3: Well, I mean, how does she do it? I mean, yeah, it's like there's a duck in the back and it's an interesting structure.
1: And and you're able to convey hair really, really well. And the way in which you are able to capture President Trump's hair is extraordinary. The belly flop hair is amazing. The hair in the rain is amazing. How much time have you spent perfecting his hair?
3: I mean there's no, not much perfecting. It's served on a platter, you know. If only everyone – Saw
1: the platter your way?
3: Looked like that. I mean if only everyone – he's so caricaturable. And uh, Sarah Huckabee Saunders, for instance, I haven't drawn her yet, but there are so many great drawings of her just like on Facebook. Everyone draws her. And some people are just, you know, they're screaming to be caricatured.
1: As tough as you've been on The Republicans, one of your most controversial illustrations, as I mentioned in the introduction, was the 2008 cover titled The Politics of Fear – And it featured Barack Obama dressed in Muslim attire, fist bumping Michelle Obama, who was dressed like activist Angela Davis and armed with an AK-47. They stood in the Oval Office with a portrait of Osama bin Laden on the wall and an American flag burning in the fireplace. When it came out, it was labeled tasteless and offensive by Obama's campaign spokesman, Bill Burton. And even Republican Senator John McCain condemned the art. Did you or the editors of The New Yorker anticipate the controversy that exploded around the cover?
3: I mean I thought it might be a touchy kind of image that might provoke some outrage. But I didn't expect there to be so much from, you know, quote unquote, my own side. I guess I should have been a little bit more aware. I think the internet helped that. I don't know if that would have happened pre-internet. But I was kind of taken aback, that's for sure, especially the first few days after it came out.
1: The New Yorker got thousands of angry emails, nearly all of them from self-proclaimed liberals, saying that, of course, they understood the intent of the image, but voters out in the big square states never would. And while talking about the image on CNN, Wolf Blitzer compared that issue of The New Yorker to those of Der Sturmer, a magazine in fascist Germany. Did you get scared at all? Were you worried?
3: Well, I mean, I'm glad that David Remnick handled that interview much more ably than I might have been able to. Uh, I mean I was scared. I was a little little freaked out. I mean I told you that when this – my book is – it's a little bit more attention than I'm happy with. So the – that particular image was – it was a frightening couple of days. I was getting threatening emails. That was
1: my next question. Given what's been happening now in our culture, when people get angry, they just go out and start killing people. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. I don't know. I, I guess. Yeah. No Do you one,
1: ever worry that if you cross a line or offend someone that, that your life could be in danger now?
3: I, I don't really – know. I mean I haven't got any, any Trump anger you know, from from right-wingers, or maybe I'm not doing my job, but...
1: The New York Times called the image the most memorable image of the 2008 presidential campaign. And in a wonderful twist of fate, after taking office, President Barack Obama chose a different New Yorker cover to hang in the White House, and that cover is of the president picking the family dog at the same time he was vetting candidates for his national security cabinet. And that's definitely a ha funny picture. Um, he also requested a signed New Yorker cover you created that depicted the president walking on water. Um, right. Is that how you felt about him? I mean, how much of your own affection for or, or dislike of a, no, of a, of a p- politician gets embedded in the work that you do?
3: I think some of it gets embedded. I mean, I'm not a big Hillary Clinton fan, but God knows I was hoping she would win. And I did a cover of her after she... After she beat out Bernie Saunders, with what we know about that now, it's it uh, it changes the meaning. But I did a drawing of her as a boxer, like a you know a battle scarred veteran, and and the sketch I had done in my in my book was you know she was brawny and looked beaten up. And as I did the final in the few hours I had to do it, I I noticed I was prettifying her and making her look young and svelte, and it just got away from me. And I guess it was my you know, my inherent liberal bias or something, but I, I had to try and 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 beat her up a little bit afterwards with I did so I did a black eye and some. You scar. put a
1: a band aid on her nose, which right. I thought was again these little touches that tell you so much more there's layers of information that you are able to glean from just a band aid <laughs> and and the placement of the band aid which is right. I was, think what makes your work so genius it
3: was cured as opposed to. The Band-Aid brand, which tells us she's off market. I'm sorry, but is that true? No. Okay,
1: <laughs> I was like, I didn't notice. That. I was, uh,
3: but we were talking about. <laughs> I would notice brands as far as uh, as Obama, as President Obama. I mean, yeah, the walking on water image was he was walking on water for three. It was a several panel image, and then the last one, he's falling in. You know, he's human after all, and uh, someone did request that from the White House. And I signed it to him, you know, to President Obama, stay dry. And uh, actually when, when, the, when I started to work on the book, my editor in his wisdom suggested we write to – try and get President Obama to write an, an intro for it. So I, I wrote him a handwritten note and drew a couple of pictures on it and sent it to him. But we, we still haven't heard from him. So oh, rats. probably not going in the book.
1: Have you heard anything from the Trump administration about any of your work your your nope. palmistry, uh, your hand uh, cover with the short vulgarian fingers?
3: I think that he he referenced it obliquely in an interview, you know, saying, "I don't know why they're saying I have small hands, I have normal sized hands. <laughs> Apparently, he sends Graydon Carter, uh, you know, regularly when he appears on a, you know, photographed uh, on a magazine cover. He'll circle his hand and send a copy to Graydon saying, see, normal hands. (laughs) I love it when we know
1: we're getting to him. Right. So I have two final questions for you. You and your wife, Angie, live in Connecticut. And I believe that you bought a house that Henry Miller
3: once owned. Yeah, that was a typo in the book, actually. It's Arthur Miller.
1: Ah, a typo. Interesting. I
3: I ought to have caught that.
1: um, Well, either way, Arthur Miller, did you find any ephemera in the basement or in the attic or?
3: That's funny. I mean, in the garden shed, uh, we were cleaning it out. And by cleaning it out, I mean she was cleaning it out, not me. Uh, And Angie found a uh, – he had carved his initials into the foundation, AM, I think, 57. I Was
1: think. it in a heart that said AM and MM or anything uh, n- like that? No, MM. No?
3: And there's a little shed in the back that he wrote Death of a Salesman in. And people come and ring our doorbell asking if they could, you know, go take pictures of it.
1: Now you're going to get all kinds of people coming in asking about Henry Miller. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I read an interview with you wherein you were asked if you were stranded on a desert island and only got to have one pad of paper – excluding toilet paper, which would be provided on the island, you had a very interesting answer. And I was wondering if you remember what that answer is.
3: I think – did I say easy wider? Is yes, that what I said? Yes, you did, so Blit. <laughs> okay. Well, That's you know. all I wanted to know. Okay. What, if,
1: you, if you remembered that that would be the, the paper yeah, that, that was, you requested. That was a few months ago. I, I remember
3: that. <laughs> but if you ask me like what went on in school or what my teachers thought – I can't remember that stuff.
1: What did they think when they realized that you were drawing caricatures of
3: them? Uh, they probably didn't like it.
1: Well, the rest of the world does. Okay. So, Barry Blitz, thank you so much for being on Design Matters, and thank you for making the world, especially our current world, a much more tolerable place for your work.
3: Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much. Nice to be here.
1: Barry Blitz's book is called Blitt. You can also find his work in The New Yorker, or on his website, barryblitt.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. And if you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.